everybody. This is Daniel Patrick, and this is episode number 148 of the Mandolins and Beer podcast, brought to you in part by my favorite website, The Mandolin Cafe. How is everybody doing? Hope you had a fantastic week. I am uh, still catching up from the, uh, the trip last week. The Green Mountain Bluegrass and Roots Festival was on. Believable. I'm actually going to do a bonus little podcast here in the next few days just to talk about all the incredible musical happenings that went on and Jill and John and what a fantastic job they put together and I just want to thank them and, and Doug and all of the volunteers and people who helped put that together. It was a fantastic time. Put it on your schedule for next year. I think it's going to be just as incredible as well. So, but more on that in a bonus episode. Uh, this episode is with Michael Daves. He performed there. We were going to do the interview there. It's just too much, uh, too much fun and excitement going on back there to throw a microphone in front of somebody's face, and you know. So we decided to catch up this week. And I'm glad we did. This is a great episode. He's a killer mandolin player, if you're not familiar. Uh, he's Yeah, he's great. And he's got some really interesting um, ideas and ways he goes about playing mandolin um, uh, through vocals and different things like that. So I think you guys are really going to enjoy this episode. And this episode is brought to you in part by... Peghead Nation. With Peghead Nation streaming video courses in mandolin, guitar, banjo, fiddle, dobro, ukulele, and bass, you'll learn bluegrass, old time, and other styles from some of the most talented players and instructors in Roots Music. The mandolin instruction is unbelievable. Sharon Gilchrist, Joe K. Walsh, Mike Compton, John Reichman, Aaron Weinstein, Marla Feibish, and Chad Manning. All uh, the courses include high-quality multi-angle video lessons, downloadable notation tab, play-along tracks, and plenty of tunes and songs to play. The best part is join any of Peghead Nation's video courses now and get your first month for free. Just go to pegheadnation.com, use the promo code MANDOLINBEER, all one word, at checkout. Northfield Mandolins, let's build more than a mandolin together. Check out their website at northfieldmandolins.com. Download their app at mandosummit.app for lots of special performance recordings, demonstrations, and special workshops. And don't forget those cases. I actually got a uh, message from a listener who got one of the cases and just sold one of their more expensive cases. Uh, And they love it. And you can still get that introductory price, I believe, at the website. But that is limited, so don't miss out. Go to northfieldmandolins.com now. Get yourself a case. Pava Mandolins, dedicated to building for the impassioned player. Right there in Austin, Texas. Pava Mandolins. Beautiful sounding. I'm still thinking about the one that I played up in Boston there a few weeks ago. Or a week ago now. Ah, time is flying by. Hey, Michael Day's wife is a luthier. She, he's going to mention that in the podcast. But have you ever thought about building yourself a mandolin? Well, if so, you should go to SimonoffBooks.com and pick up your copy of the Ultimate Bluegrass Mandolin Construction Manual. It's in its fourth edition. It's on the shelf of some of the finest luthiers around. It was originally published in 73. The fourth edition was put out in 2021, fully updated, fully revised, 330 plus color photos, everything you need to know about building a Bill Monroe style F5 mandolin. I mean, you know it's going to be good when the introduction is by Stephen Gilchrist. So go out and get yourself a copy today at SimonoffBooks.com, a stellar instrument building manual by heralded luthier and author Roger H. Simonoff. Now, I can understand if you don't have time to build a mandolin, but you can definitely go out and buy one. The best place to do that is Elderly Instruments. Elderly Instruments is your trusted source for new used and vintage fretted and stringed instruments. For the experienced to beginner player, their vast selection of mandolins, guitars, banjos, ukuleles, and did I mention mandolins? 
includes all of the accessories and books to go with them. All instruments are inspected and set up for easy playability, and their down-to-earth and knowledgeable staff are there to help. Now in their 50th year, they're family-owned and operated. They ship worldwide, and you can visit them anytime at elderly.com. All right, let's get into the episode with Michael Davis. Thanks again to all my sponsors. Be sure to go and check out their websites. Also, if you are listening to this on any sort of app where you can subscribe, please subscribe. That is free, and it helps and goes a long way. If you're wondering what samples of songs are being played, you can always go to mandolinsbeer.com where I have the tracks listed and the albums that you can find them on there as well. And also be sure to go to check out Michael Daves at michaeldaves.com. I'll have a link below and uh, his social medias as well. All right, hope everybody has themselves a fantastic weekend. Cheers, everybody. I'd like to welcome to the podcast, Michael Daves. Michael, how's it going? Great. Thanks for having me. Man, thank you so much for doing it. You absolutely crushed it on Sunday with your uh, with your with band of friends there. What a great set. Yeah. No, thanks. And thanks for the introduction uh, on stage for us. And it was uh, nice to meet you in person, too. Yeah, same here. And we were going to do it there. But man, it was just such a... Uh, just such a cool hang of people catching up with people and, you know, and trying to get a lot of things done there too. So I'm glad. Thank you for taking the time to do this today. Yeah. Yeah. Glad this worked out. Oh yeah. Me too. First of all, it was, um, your, the, the, um, the thing you did was called Georgia crawl. And if you'd like to tell people about that, that was a really a, a cool concept. I thought that you had. Oh, thanks. Yeah. That, um, yeah. Well, the band was, it was just, you know, Michael Davis and friends, but it, and then for the last, um, while I'd say maybe about three or four years now, been collecting songs from Atlanta, which is where I grew up. And um, it kind of all kicked off with this song uh, written by a friend of mine, Whit Connor, who was sort of a musical godfather to me growing up and a really amazing singer and songwriter. He wrote this song called Ponce de Leon Avenue. If you know Atlanta, Ponce de Leon is, is kind of one of the main old thoroughs of Paris that kind of goes from the middle of town down by the Fox Theater out through Decatur, where I grew up. And, um, so this is this amazing country song that he wrote. And so and started, it's kind of got me thinking about, you know, the, the, there's just all this history of mu- musical history in Atlanta of country music um, that people don't know a lot about it's kind of going back to the twenties, 1920s. Um, Atlanta used to be sort of a center of country music. And then it's kind of got thinking about how many experiences and memories I had along possibly on Avenue and various things are all these great, you know, kind of uh, places to play that are kind of in that environment. And this kind of a lot of colorful characters used to <laughs> hang out in <laughs> parts. So uh, there's this whole history there with musical and cultural history of Atlanta. And I realized that there was like a lot of music that was, you know, tied to Ponce Leon Avenue um, in one way or another. So I just started collecting songs and you know, realized that, oh, I have more than a set worth of, of it at this point. So <laughs> <laughs> decided to, to play it with them. Um, you know, with that band there at Green Mountain Festival. That was so. great, man. And then the, um, I thought it was really cool. I, I also didn't realize the history of, um, you know, like uh, Bill Monroe going down and recording in Atlanta. Yeah. Well, yeah, the, a lot of band, uh, country bands, uh, well, uh, Nashville had the Grand Ole Opry from, you know, from the 20s on. So, I mean, there were a lot of performers there, but it was a while before they had um, a really a recording studio culture. So, 
even as late as I think uh, you know, 1939, 1940 uh, is, is when Bill Monroe made his first recordings with the Bluegrass Boys. He had to go to Atlanta to do them because that's where the studios were at that time. So, um, so like the Neil Skinner Blues Sessions. Bluegrass, um, sorry, what is that? Uh, uh, Special. Special. Thank you. I, was, I kept wanting to say twist. I'm like, uh, no, I was it's not there. twist. <laughs> no, no, no. The twist is also good. But um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, anyways, th- yeah. Those those early Monroe sessions were in Atlanta at the Kimball House Hotel, which is kind of housed several recording studios. Several labels have recording studios there. I think it also may have been functioning somewhat as a house of ill repute. But um, <laughs> <laughs> anyhow, so um, yeah. The Atlanta had, you know, its own country musicians and country it had its own bar, bar, country barn dance, sort of you know, in the style of the Grand Ole Opry. On, um, but yeah, so there's all that history. And then, yeah, I grew up there. Was you know, my, my own kind of musical coming of age was in the '90s. Um, so there, there was some good good music happening at that time. Was it was it the kind of like the old school style of music as well, or was it a little bit different? Well, um, yeah, there was. Uh, well, various, you know, overlapping scenes as, as in many places with good musical culture. So, I mean, my parents uh, play fiddle and banjo and they have jams at their house. They were um, more into old time music. And um, and then I would also go to this, the, the main bluegrass spot in Atlanta back in those days was called the Freight Room. And right, right on the railroad tracks in Decatur, it was like an old hundred year old train depot. And they'd have... Um, uh, bluegrass bands in there every Thursday night and then a jam on the deck um, out like on like the train platform. So I, I, we lived near there. So I ended up down at the freight room as often as I could. Um, even when I had like calculus tests the next morning, um, <laughs> I was like, I'm not wanting to be studying math. I wanted to be hanging out. And that was a very traditional jam. And there was like this, you know, some old, old school guys. There was this guy, a uh, fiddler, Dallas Burel, who was a very colorful character. Um, and an older guy. And he actually had played on some of these like country barn dances on the radios in the fifties, like backing up, you know, stars who would come through. So he was, he was, he was really cool. Yeah. A lot of very traditional straight ahead bluegrass. Uh, but another thing that was Atlanta had at that time was, uh, you know, the prayer and rescue unit. There's this, you know, Colonel Bruce
and this amazing band um, and uh, their mandolin player Matt Mundy uh, was, was a big early inspiration um, and, and they were doing so a lot of progressive stuff you know kind of crossover funk and fusion and but mixing it with bluegrass I mean Mundy was a really serious traditional bluegrass player who was also like somewhat of a musical savant and just figured out how to play all this incredibly complex fusion jazz uh um evidently just he just kind of figured it out you know not like you know he didn't like go to berkeley or anything he just kind of figured it out and <laughs> yeah blew my, i had him on the show and it blew my mind when i asked that money oh yeah, cool yeah yeah i love his playing man and when, when i asked him he's like no nah, not really i just kind of figured it out. i'm like oh my goodness yeah <laughs> i know i know his, his playing is crazy um i used to see the Brooker and Mesk unit they're like i'm basically new year's eve uh, down little five points at the end. Um, the variety playhouse and, and those were just legendary shows and um, he'd show up at the freight room every once in a while too at the, the jam and sit in with some band playing traditional stuff so it was like amazing to, for, for me to watch someone be able to kind of go back and forth between you know the, those those different uh, uh, you know cultures you know just, just really getting Monroe style you know, mandolin, and then then the Kermit's unit was this totally out there stuff. And then, you know, he's, you know, I, I probably talked about this with Matt, but he, you know, he ended up on that, that track on the Bill Fleck record, um, Kills from the Acoustic Planet, the uh, opening track there, Up and Running, which I guess evidently Sam Bush had broken his arm or something and, and was supposed to play on that track, but um, Bela called, called in Matt Mundy, who just totally slayed it. <laughs> track it's with it's with you know tony rice is on that track and which you know the flex tones and um paul, uh, paul mccann was um on oboe and it's, yeah it's just it's incredible but yeah now were you playing mandolin at these jams or were you playing guitar both oh cool yeah i, I would i would yeah i've kind of doubled um kind of pretty much as long as i've been playing like guitar, yeah, actually, no, I probably started, you know, I started guitar a little bit, but as long as I've been playing bluegrass, I would say, which is, you know, I started out as, you know, playing like Led Zeppelin and stuff like that, of course, on the guitar. Um, and then uh, realized that there was an old mandolin in the house that, that had been my, my sister's and it was, in, you know, had action about in, in Chai. <laughs> but I, just, I always thought it sounded so great, so I started playing that and, you know, it would sort of double and you know, go back and forth between guitar and mandolin in bluegrass, but. Yeah, I, you know, I think, um, you know, a lot of people maybe know you more probably from your guitar and vocal stuff, kind of maybe in the mandolin world, possibly because, you know, the album that you did, the duo album with Thiele. But um, uh-huh. I remember when I first got into mandolin and was just typing in mandolin, I mean, just searching the Internet, you know, probably the, uh, you know, I, geez, I can't even remember now anymore, early 2000s when I got one. But I ran across like your website somehow, and I think it even, even had a story about how you had gotten like an older Gibson mandolin at one point, And I can't. I, 
wish I could remember exactly uh, where I found it, but it was just like, I remember there were some tunes on there. I'm like, oh my gosh, who is this guy? <laughs> oh. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I always love to play mandolin. But, um, uh, you know, I, and when I moved, I moved to New York in 2003, from I was living in the Pioneer Valley of Western Massachusetts before that, I was, which is where I got to school. And, um, you know, that kind of was, uh, around the time I, I was sort of transitioning back into bluegrass. I say you know, bluegrass just being something I grew up with and around, but during college, I studied more jazz and kind of gotten into experimental music. And, but was also playing you know, bluegrass and had an old time band, uh, up there as well. But, um, you know, around the time I showed up in New York, I, I was sort of kind of still had, uh, kind of a lot of different stylistic interests. And I was kind of thinking like, Oh man, I wonder if I should, maybe I could be like the mandolin guy in New York. And, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and you know, a couple of things happened. One is that uh, a couple of years later, Thiele showed up and I'm like, okay, yeah, no, we'll, we'll <laughs> yeah. Let, him, let, let him be the mandolin guy in New York. That's fine. Um, He's got it. He's got it covered. Um, but also, I was like, singing more and more. I mean, I, it's like sung all along, but it wasn't really until I moved back to New York that I really started embracing my singing as, as kind of a more primary thing. And, you know, I, I was, it's always, like, it's certainly a jam. It's always, I find it so much easier to lead a song you know, or a jam situation on guitar because I have bass runs. You know, I can, I can like, guide, um, you know, people from chord to chord more easily than on mandolin um and also i started doing solo shows and um you know i didn't have a i was playing mandolin but didn't have enough of a, <laughs> a concept there to like support a full solo show with just <laughs> yeah. vocal and mandolin i mean i know there are people that do that I mean, tim o'brien mike compton uh Thiele, they all do their own version of that uh you know beautifully but uh anyways i just kind of gravitated towards guitar as my main instrument because it always kind of went better for me with, with, with my singing. Also, I'm a lot more opinionated about guitar playing than I am about mandolin playing. <laughs> so I kind of rather do it myself. <laughs> that's great. That, that, that's actually as much of it as anything. <laughs> I um, Dave Sinko was sitting next to us during your set. I've had Dave Sinko on the uh, podcast as well. Oh, yeah. Brilliant. Brilliant guy. Oh my gosh. And he had nothing but praise for you. And he's like, look at the mic control on this guy. <laughs> oh, that's, that's high praise coming from Dave Cinco, the one of the greatest uh, sound and recording engineers uh, working today, like live sound. Oh, for sure. And um, it was amazing to watch. Yeah, that was that was great. And just to see him smiling and whooping it up out there. So, oh, that's 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 great. Well, we want to, we want to keep Dave Cinco happy. He, he, he helps everyone sound better. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. Yeah, it's good, good to keep him happy for sure. Yeah. <laughs> so did you know, like you wanted to do music, you know, you're talking about taking calculus, which is a, a pretty advanced course, uh, you know, <clears throat> no matter what grade you're in, college, high school, whatever. You <laughs> it was know, advanced for me anyhow. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, so was it music that you were just like, yeah, I'm going to attempt this? Or was it a, a side idea that became kind of a full-term idea? No, you know, I, it's, well, it's performing. I've uh, really never been a full-time performer. Um, kind of never, never made that uh, decision uh, for myself. But I, uh, it, it, it did, it took a while to, to you know, think of music as a profession. Um, and um, I, I was, you know, love playing music, you know, it was a big part of my life, you know, creatively and socially, but I always kind of figured that I'd go into academia or something. Cause that's, you know, my dad and my brother are both college professors. Had a, you know, there's a lot of educators in the, in the family. Um, 
so I just kind of figured that I'd do that and do music on the side. Um, but uh, what sort of forced my hand actually was was that when I, uh, my, my daughter was born, and actually was in the last year of college, and at, at that point, I, you know, I hadn't had the chance to go to graduate school or you know pursue an advanced degree, which you really need to do if you're going to work in academia. And like the thing that I could do then and there was to to, to make money is, is to you know basically to teach and a little bit of performing on the side. So I, I started teaching full-time really on early on. I've just been doing that uh, as my main uh, activity ever since. And I, you know, was grateful to you know, get to get out to these festivals and, and take part and, and what's going on. But um, so I would say there was never a decision to, to like be a performer, but I, I did realize that I really liked teaching and like, well, okay, this is not what I thought I was going to be doing, but hey, this actually makes a lot of sense, and I, I enjoy it. I probably have you know something to offer in this um, regard, and you know, and I'm still doing that. I think it's uh, explains a lot there with the uh, with the uh, academia thing because you're quite the historian with music, and then the stories you told about the songs as well. Oh, I get carried away with that. Yeah, yeah I was. I love that stuff, though, man. That's like some. Of my, that's why I love live shows. Like, if I'm going to go see somebody, it's going to just sound like a record the whole time. I'll stay. I'll save the money and the trouble of having to leave my house, you know. But you know, for yeah. you to, to, it was really um, one moment in particular was when you were talking about a song that a friend of the family wrote, and mm-hmm. the, I mean, that you remembered it so well and like reached out before performing it and. And uh, maybe uh, maybe you could tell that story a little bit. And was that song recorded too? Yeah, I mentioned Wit. I mentioned Wit Kana, who wrote the song Ponsilion Avenue, that kind of got, got me started on this you know project of finding Atlanta music. But um, this is his wife, Barbara Panther, uh, also an amazing musician, uh, she's a fiddler and singer. Um, and it's Barbara who wrote that song uh, that I think you're talking about, called uh, "There's a Blue Moon Out Tonight." And um, um, yeah, I mean, she she brought it out at a jam session. I remember it was 1996 because the Atlanta Olympics were going on, and you know, so you know, those people who lived there were not actually going to the Olympics, but just kind of hunkering down. <laughs> you know, the city <laughs> right. kind of shut down for normal activities, and so we were just jamming. And uh, she brought out that song, which she had just written like a day or two before, and we we I, it just stuck with me. And, like every every you know so often I'd ask her about that. It's like, oh yeah, did you ever finish that song? Because she said she needed to finish it. And she's like, oh no, I never got around to it. And then it's like a couple of years ago, I'm like, Barbara, what about that song? You, you still remember that? She's like, oh yeah. And I've asked her to if she would uh, send me a, a voice memo. So she just recorded it, the, the first half of it, that, and um, you know, I, I I learned it and. and doing, it's like, oh man, well, you got to finish this song. It's so great. And eventually, I, there was uh, actually it was during a blue moon. I, I, it's, a, it's just a very cheesy coincidence, but like uh, this other verse just kind of came to me. And so I wrote it, um, or the other verse, and ran by her and, you know, asked if she wanted to collaborate on it. And she said, oh no, it's great. It's just, you know, love it. So she seemed, she, we said she was happy with it as a continuation of, of what she had started. Oh, that's amazing. So subject to further revision, but. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, it was a beautiful yeah. song and I thought it really added a lot. I think it added a lot to the set, especially that story. Yeah, that was really, really mm-hmm. amazing. So. Yeah. So well, thank re- you. Oh yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, it's always, you know, we get so much music just, you know, passed down from person to person and it's great to learn music from 
recordings and I, I, I do that all the time, but you know, there's something special about you know, learning uh, music from directly from a person, especially some from someone who wrote it or originated it. And, you know, it kind of feels more like a transmission. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, it's, it's it's literally how it used used to be how it was done before. You yeah, know, totally. Anything else, you know? It's yeah. The, the oral tradition. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> when you were um when you were playing mandolin and, and like learning songs and stuff like that, did you have some favorite recordings that you were going to or favorite players that you were really drawn to back then? Yeah. Well. There, well. Yeah. I think I was thinking about this a little bit before talking to you, but there there were three, and and the biggest was always Bill Monroe, uh, particularly particularly his. Um, the two Smithsonian Folkways uh, discs that Ralph Rensler put out on the well, Bill Monroe off the record, volume one and two. And the volume one is the, that's the Bluegrass Boys from like 1956 to 69. And it's got, you know, it's got Del McCurry and Bill Keith and Tex Logan on there. And it's just, it's all just so good and raw and immediate. Traveling through this world below There is no toll, no sick, no danger In that felon to which um, I go And then the, the second disc there is the Bill Monroe and Doc Watson stuff and is, yeah, so those, it's, those really, for me, that's that's my Mount Rushmore of, of bluegrass music and mandolin <laughs> yeah. playing. Uh, they're uh, just the, the, those discs. Um, and every time I go back to them, and I'm just blown away, just like yeah, the first time, you know. You know, like, I, I think there's a lot in bluegrass, just in mandolin world, you hear this, you know, like, people are, like, respectful of Bill Monroe, but they don't necessarily like Bill. <laughs> Like as right. much as they respect him, <laughs> and you hear people say like, "Oh yeah, he's a great musician. He invented the music, but he was sort of sloppy." <laughs> and and I, I, I just don't. I don't even hear that. But, but <laughs> I'm, like, I'm like, just just walk on by. I, I don't. I don't. But for me, like everything about his playing is just as it should be, and you know, needs no, uh, you know, edit or caveat, and um, you know, that, that's includes his latter period of playing, you know, when his, you know, his, his technique wasn't what it was when in 1937, when he was shredding with Charlie Monroe and the Monroe brothers, but you know, it was just as good. I thought always. So anyways, but Bill, love Bill. Ah, me too. And, um, I always compared him a little bit to Hendrix. Um, cause also, I, you know, I love Jimi Hendrix and w- I, people mm. say that about Jimi Hendrix is too, is, you know, like, ah, oh, so sloppy live. I'm like, oh, he's sloppy. He's going for it. He's going for it every year. You know, yeah. that's what I always loved about Bill Monroe is, you know, yeah, he might not get there every time, but man, when he does, it's if like, you're going to ex- express something that strongly and meaningfully, there's going to be collateral damage. It's, it's just, <laughs> you, that's, that's the best way to put it, man. <laughs> collateral damage. That's, a, that's yeah. great. <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah. And I think that's what I mean. That's part of what I like that, that, that whole energy. Um, uh, it really inspires me. And actually, so that, uh, I was talking about kind of three mental players that really inspired me Bill being first and foremost, uh, Matt Mundy, who I mentioned was, was another one, you know, just him being around the scene. And so, uh, amazing. And then the third, a third one was, uh, <laughs> it fits in that theme of collateral damage is, is uh, Andy Stabman.
it's just such a thoroughly outrageous and thoroughly unique player, you know, who's just so true to his vision. And his vision is just totally bananas. It's, it's, <laughs> it's, uh, I love just how unhinged his playing is, you know, but, but not like uncontrolled or undisciplined, but just unhinged, you know, emotionally and, and expressively. And it's just, he just lets it all out on the mandolin. So, um, I first heard Andy Statman through this, uh, well, uh, you know, Andy was back in the 1970s. He was in the band Breakfast Special with Tony Trishka, Kenny Kosek, uh, Roger Mason, uh, Stacey Phillips, uh, Roger French on drums. Um, and Jim Tolles was the singer and uh, guitar, uh, songwriter, main songwriter for the band. Kenny also wrote, um, but the, Jim was kind of the main singer, songwriter, guitarist for, for Breakfast Special. And Jim uh, lived in Atlanta. So when I was growing up, he was well-established as a teacher and he actually taught my mom fiddle lessons and he was my first guitar teacher um, when I was probably like 13 or 14. And um, later on, Jim uh, hired me as his side man. He had a, he put together a band called um, uh, Magic Truck that was that he, he wrote songs for. It was kind of kind of a crossover roots bluegrass band, kind of vocal centric. There, you know, I, I didn't sing in it, but anyway. So Jim and we did some breakfast special material, and so I, I encountered breakfast special and learned about Andy through Jim Tolls um, through being in that band uh, with with Jim. And Jim would occasionally come back up to New York and go hang out with Andy and Tony and Kenny and those old guys. And like I remember coming back and you're like. It's just that these guys, they just keep getting better and better. <laughs> it's just like, how is, that, how is that? I mean, they were amazing in the 70s, but like, they just keep on getting better and better. Anyway, so I, I through Jim, I learned about Andy and his music and, you know, kind of just inherited Jim's sense of perspective and offer Andy's musicianship and, and just got totally into it. And so, uh, you know, later when I moved to New York, I actually you know, got to meet and, and work with Andy. And um, so uh, that's always been a joy. But yeah, he always reminds me of like, you know, some people have a, I always envision like some people have a valve where, you know, like you hold back or you like allow a certain amount of something to come out. You're always restrained a little bit. And Andy's valve is just like wide open. It like is. Just yeah. gives it 100% every totally. single time. And I love it. Yeah. Yeah. And he's, he's, you know, Andy is one of the most Monroe-ish Mandolin players, I think that there is, and and you know, uh, I mean, there there are a bunch of great musicians who like who all have like a different piece of of what Monroe was bringing to the table, like Mike Compton, Chris Henry, you know, both really, you know, uh, you know David Bachman, they all they all have like really important deep pieces of Monroe uh, in their playing that they've really taken to heart and you know and understood, you know, and executed you know, more than, more than most out there. And, and, uh, but Andy has a piece of Monroe. I think there's just like this spirit, this outrageousness, um, of Monroe was, you know, kind of like that. I mean, um, you could turn on a dime and just be so like beautiful and dramatic and Gothic sounding, and then just kind of knock your head off with, with some, like powerful <laughs> syncopated lick or, you know, or, 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 um, you know, just that sort of racehorse gallop, you know, <laughs> then. Yeah. Just that, that sort of, it's like a galloping horse and an old time fiddle kind of com combined into a mandolin. So, you know, but, but those are 
just things I've always been really inspired by. And Andy clearly gets a, a, a piece of that. You know, I think that uniquely, um, and you know, of course, mixes it with his own just total inspiration and vision. But yeah, stuff that that stuff is so powerful. I mean, like just what you were playing there. It is just like. I mean, just knock your head off, you know, and yeah, yeah and even tunes. I love that, you know, even when he had tunes. I mean, that's a, another great sign of a musician is like, you know, if you're a mandolin player and a band leader, and you have a tune that has no mandolin solo in it because you had a different vision. I mean, you know, that's amazing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Whenever I hear an album by a band who's like a leader, um, or hear a song and the first solo isn't them, I'm like, ah, oh, okay, you've got my attention now because we're just <laughs> other people in your band, you know, before you show yourself. I'm like, that's that's mm-hmm. you know. That's great, um, and and then obviously the you know the the album that you did with Thiele is I always it reminded me of how like maybe I don't want to say maybe this is the wrong word to use but I always thought like maybe punk rock bluegrass could be like I still always <laughs> envision like walking into a, a bar or a club or anywhere when the Monroe Brothers were playing. And it had to have been if somebody wasn't used to like like raucous music, like it had to have been like walking into a club and seeing like the Sex Pistols play or something. You know, it had to have been like, uh, yeah, what totally. Is this? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> well, check please. You know, or you were like, wow, what is this? Like, this is rock and roll, man. You know, uh-huh. get closer. And you guys, it's been a. I really thought the spirit of that um that album really brought that back for a minute too. It was just really energetic and like, you know. It felt as old-timey as some of that stuff could be. Oh, cool thank you yeah that was a really fun record to make and to to, to you know play live um but yeah this the Philly days record it it reflected i think for both of us you know our our upbringing with you know traditional music and i think for him the the main touchstone was the skaggs and rice record which uh he grew up with you know and like you know it was like going on in the, in the car you know time you could remember um and for me it was like more really like monroe brothers um was not necessarily not something i heard until later but you know that and the bill monroe and doc watson you know records and uh but then you know those uh you know and so those are common points of reference were, were very much intermingled with kind of what we were each you know into and responding to in new york at that time because Let's see, I moved to New York in 2003. Um, I think Thiele moved there in 2005. Um, and he had just gotten divorced and was, I think, just looking to kind of start over and, uh, you know, discover himself as an independent uh, adult um, and, and kind of on his own terms. And, uh, you know, the rock scene in the New York and other places in Detroit, you know, in, in, in the early aughts was, was really strong. I mean, they had like bands like the Strokes and the White Stripes and yeah, yeah, yeahs and uh, not New York, but Radiohead. Um, <laughs> right, right. Chris was super, super into Radiohead. <laughs> but, uh, you know, there was like a lot of um, um, kind of rock and raucous rock. It was like, um, 
you know, I think a reaction to like the stuff that like the, I don't know, there's kind of slicker stuff and then also jam down kind of based stuff in the, of the nineties. And like, I think in the early aughts they were in this kind of in around the lower East side in Williamsburg, uh, Brooklyn, there's like a real kind of return to, yeah, it's like punk influenced progressive music. So I mean, it's kind of like punk, not, not like initially throwback punk, but, um, you know, punk combined with, uh, uh, you know, experimental music, punk combined with pop, um, punk combined with, you know, kind of garage and psychedelia and, and, and all that. So that was sort of just sort of the energy, I think, of, of that time and place. And, and um, you know, I think something that we were both, you know, around and feeding off and, um, you know, it just kind of came out in the interpretation of, of, the, of that old stuff. And I think that, I think especially for Thiele, you know, he, he uh, was, he made such a splash so young, you know, with those first couple albums. So what is it like leading off and stealing second? And, and you know, everyone's like, Oh my gosh, he's the next coming of Bill Monroe. And, you know, like I think people, he has always kind of dealt with dealing with like people's expectations of what kind of man player he's going to be and what kind of stylist he's going to be. But of course he's always wanted to explore. And it's been, that's, you know, one of the biggest points of respect I have for, for Chris is just his, um, I mean, yeah, he appreciates the attention, but he won't rest on his laurels. You know, he'll, he'll, uh, you know, he, he's always pushing himself to like find new stuff. And so I think that for a long time, he had been sort of reluctant to like dip back into that well of traditional music because he did, he had spent a long time and a lot of energy, um, you know, uh, getting away from that expectation people, you know, were, were trying to put on him. And so I think that something about probably it's something to do with that time in his life, you know, kind of looking to start over and, uh, you know, moving to New York I, I, and something about our project. I think he's talked about this song is that it helps him like access this, the traditional music, which he loved so much and was so much, you know, so foundational for him, but like he wasn't always as comfortable playing. Um, but I think we found a way to play that stuff in a way that was, uh, you know, of its time and place, which was, you know, the music was happening in New York. So we weren't, you know, <laughs> um, like trying to make everyone at the Opry happy or, <laughs> you know, <laughs> Missouri or, or whatever, you know, um, you know, we're, we're going to have kind of more traditionally minded audiences. Maybe we were playing for audiences, you know, some of whom had like just never heard bluegrass before. So it was all new to them anyhow. So, and uh, there were a lot of uh, fans of traditional bluegrass and country music in New York. Um, but, you know, they tend to like really like the old stuff and, you know, not to the exclusion of, of you know, many other kinds of music. So, I think it was just a good place for that to flourish because in New York, we could just operate in that very traditional mode without the expectations that traditional audiences can sometimes kind of place on that music. And, you know, I think on Chris in particular, I, I didn't really care too much. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but I also wasn't a child prodigy. <laughs> I had to deal with uh, a lot of, you know, people's strong expectations about what I was going to become. So like, they're like, Oh, you're going to be a musician? Uh, cool. All right. <laughs> yeah, right, right. Yeah. Now, when you, you know, you got that real galloping thing from Monroe. Uh, is there anything yeah. that you gleaned when you were doing those duo gigs from that kind of crossed over into your playing? Oh, man. I, I, I cop so much Monroe stuff on the, in my guitar playing. It's, it's, you know, I, I do a lot of tremolo. Um, 
they do a lot of the downstroke stuff, you know, like, you know, stuff to do on the guitar if you can be playing bluegrass why why not you know play you know draw from bill monroe but i, th I think guitar players generally tend to get more you know kind of in guitar licks and a guitar zone you know and i'd like not uh, historically listen to a lot of other guitar players really closely until recently <laughs> but growing up i was listening more to like fiddle and mandolin players and banjo players and so definitely I'd say like the lion's share of, of influence for me on my guitar style has come from Monroe. Now, now you're saying you, you, now you teach vocal lessons at artist works. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, and I know you teach mandolin lessons. Um, would it be online as well? Yeah. Well, I teach, you know, private lessons in guitar mandolin and also have been doing these group classes online. They've, they've all been online since the pandemic, which has been a very cool actually opportunity. So I've been, offering these classes that are much more nerdy deep dives. Like I taught a class on the Skagton Rice record oh, wow. <laughs> last summer. It is for guitar and mandolin students and, and I pair them up each week and they do like collaborative recording projects remotely, you know, based, based on, uh, you know, transcriptions. And I would transcribe like Ricky's, uh, mandolin lines, both to the mandolin and to the guitar and, and some of Tony's stuff onto the mandolin, although that Tony's doesn't, doesn't always translate to the mandolin as well as right, right. mandolin will translate to the guitar usually. But, um, so yeah, the, you know, the online class, I teach them on zoom and, you know, I've kind of been doing this series on, on guitarists did one on uh, Tony Rice's Manzanita, did a doc Watson class. Currently I'm teaching one on Norman Blake's uh, whiskey before breakfast album. Norman Blake, also great mandolin player. Great love mandolin his, player. Love, man, love his mandolin playing. I've been trying to get him on the podcast. It's a, Impossible. Oh, good luck. I, 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 I was <laughs> teaching this entire class on his album and I, I tried to get him and on that. And he's like, no, he's too reclusive. But yeah, but the artist works I've been doing since 2016. Um, and, um, uh, you know, with the, they, I was sort of the last addition to their bluegrass schools. They started with Tony Trishka and Banjo and then, they added kind of all at once or, you know, in quick succession, Daryl Anger, uh, Phil, Mike Marshall on mandolin, Missy Raines on bass, Andy Hall on dobro, um, and Brian Sutton on guitar. And so the only thing missing was vocals. And so I, I know pretty much all those people. I'm sure someone recommended me, but <laughs> I, got, I got asked um, to uh, to do just a, a pure vocal school on Artsworks, um, so which I launched in 2016. And I've been doing it ever since. And that's been a really great experience. Um, and it was kind of the first time I taught vocals independently from an instrument because in my guitar and mandolin 
lessons. I always, I'm always getting students to do vocal ear training. Um, it's a big part of how I approach teaching instruments is, you know, uh, you know, getting people to kind of sing along with what they're doing to try to, you know, improve that connection from their ear to your fingers. Um, and then also using the voice to do like ear training to understand, you know, the underlying structures of harmony and triads and stuff. So it's not something you're doing on paper, but it's something that you're actually, you know, singing and experiencing much more directly. So, um, yeah, so the vocals have always been a really big part of, of my teaching instruments, but, uh, yeah, I got asked to do it as a standalone thing. Um, and which was really a fascinating learning curve. And uh, I'm still learning, still learning <laughs> from every student who submits and kind of always constantly getting ideas of how to approach it differently. But um, most of the students on their on Hoursworks site play an instrument. Um, so a lot of, get, get a lot of people cross enrolling with Sierra Hall and uh, Mike Marshall, uh, and they'll, they'll also do vocals. Um, and I, I love it. It is that I'm always, always trying to, when students there have instrumental skill, I'm always trying to get them to kind of use, parlay that to, to help their help their voices. And I'm always making the point that, um, you know, to be able to sing and play a melody together is, is kind of the ultimate, uh, you know, practice of internalization of, of anything you're going to play. So, um, you know, if, if someone's learning, um, you know, sweetheart of mine, can you hear me calling, you know, I'll, I'll go, the days are long and the nights are lonely. I'll get them to play. So, really trying to track all that ornamentation, you know, the sliding between notes. Um, and, you know, that sort of thing, it gets people, well, first of all, like, it, people haven't used their voice a lot. Maybe they haven't, like, developed all, like, the fine control to, like, hit all those ornaments, all those, you know, chromatic movements that are, you know, take some training to get, then you have the instrument there to, like, you can match your voice to, you got to get that sharp four. <laughs> uh, there's like three, four, sharp four, five. So there's like three notes half step in a row. That's hard to sing. Uh, to, to have that precision. So they have the instrument there to help, you know, their voices learn to do that, that thing. But then in turn, you know, they end up getting a, um, you get the vocal melody onto the mandolin, which, and if you can play that vocal melody, uh, you know, you're off to the races as far as playing any sort of break. Um, For sure. I yeah. have said this on the podcast before, but like, you know, I play, um, I play hundreds of gigs here in Charleston a year, uh, South Carolina, where I live. And I'm always more impressed when somebody comes up to sit in on guitar and they've never necessarily like heard the song before. You know, or, you know, and then they play the melody for the first solo break they take. And I'm like, right mm -hmm. there is somebody, I, you know, it's just like, that's, that's tough to do. And that's somebody who's listening, you know? Yeah. That's musicianship right there. Yeah, for sure. And you know, as listen somebody, and translate that musical idea. Yeah. Yeah. As opposed to somebody comes up and is like, are we, we a mixolydian? I'm like, oh boy, here we go. <laughs> yeah. We're about to be scaled. Yeah, to however death. long that solo form is, it's going to feel longer. Yeah. <laughs> right. Exactly. Yeah. But it's, yeah. It's never wrong to play the melody. Um, and, um, you know, I, I think it's so important that like in, when people are learning instrumental bluegrass, I mean, that like they're, 
there's so much of it that happens at such a ridiculously high level, technically, you know, I mean, Jim Sierra Hole, Chris Beale, you know, Jake Jolliffe, you know, these people who can just play, you know, around the moon <laughs> in the blink of an eye. Um, and so I think there's this, it kind of, I mean, and th there's this idea that, oh, that's the standard that like, if you really play the music, you know, you, you need to be able to do that. And so, you know, oh, if I don't see myself as ever kind of getting near that, then, then why try? <laughs> but, <laughs> uh, uh, you know, it, it, when you're playing, especially like traditional bluegrass, I mean, you can get so much done just with a little bit if you're in line with the melody. So um, that's, that's one of the reasons I emphasize it so much, especially with kind of beginner and intermediate players is because, you know, let's see. Um, all right, what's up? Something I know the mandolin break too. Uh, Uh, that. <laughs> That's the uh, Ricky Skaggs mandolin break on um, Old Home Place from the uh, J.D. Crow, uh, you know, recording from 76. Anyway, so like, you know, that, that's like not like the hardest break to play, but it's, it's you know, it's just tricky. Um, but you don't have to be able to play something like that to be able to jam on Old Home Place. You know, but you know how to find... You know, to actually play the melody and, and you know, follow some of that ornamentation, uh, you're, again, that's, that's so, uh, it's always going to be appropriate and, you know, it doesn't require the pyrotechnics to, to execute that. Um, but it's, it's, you know, it's, it's real, it's really real. <laughs> and, and, and a lot of times too I mean almost always it's in more especially the more like one four five sort of bluegrassy songs it's usually just one of three notes you're going to need to use to start that and it's a lot easier uh -huh. when you know that you know what a triad is and so it's gonna be the one of three mm -hmm. or the five most likely and if you start it there and, and start thinking of it that way it really kind of opens a little bit of a window of doing that with every, you know, almost every song you're going to run across that night. If you can, yeah. you know, listen to some of those songs, be like, oh, it's the five. They're starting on the five there, you know, and then it's like, oh, mm -hmm. you know, it all becomes a little bit easier. Totally. And for people who like haven't, you know, they, they haven't like figured out how to hear the chord tones or, you know, some people find it daunting at first to like, oh, no, whether you're on the three or the five or whatever. It's like, oh, I just kind of want to play. But uh, when, you know, when uh, another thing I have people do is just to um, uh, connect with the rhythm of what song. So like, you know, it's been 10 long years since I left my home So that's the rhythm of the melody. And if you can find any notes that sort of work, you know, in, <laughs> in, in, in the key, it could be the root notes, one, three, the four, the, the chords, one, three, four, and five, so one. Uh, and you could just play, you know, play notes that don't necessarily agree with the chord. But <laughs> if, you, if you have, um, you know, the rhythm of the melody in there, it's going to sound coherent to some degree. So, and it's a way of listening to, to the song, to the singing that doesn't involve necessarily even needing to find or even hear the pitches. But, you know, the, the, so, so a lot of the great singers are, are very rhythmic. I mean, you listen to like Mac Wiseman sing, can't you hear me calling? Or, you know, Jimmy Martin, Bill Monroe, you know, they're, they're great syncopators. Um, you know, they're, they're always, uh, you know, put, putting a lot of rhythmic variation in there. And that's, that's stuff that I think people can 
tend to pick up on much more immediately than necessarily the notes or the chord progressions or whatever. So, but just, just, you know, thinking like a drummer. And then like finding some way to work that rhythm into the solo with whatever notes you can figure out that to find on the fly, you know? So it's just another way of listening to the voice. That's just as important that people don't often think to do. <laughs> yeah. Right. Right. This is great stuff, man. Yeah. Yeah. I love it. All right. So what's the, uh, what's the main acts? What are you playing right now? When we're while we're doing this here. Um, this mandolin, uh, I'm playing right now is a K, uh, from probably the late fifties or the early sixties. It's one of the Venetian body shapes. It's got the F holes and then like, it doesn't have a scroll, but it has like these kind of looks almost like on a wave sort of points on it or something, but, um, you know, rope binding. Um, I really love these, uh, these, the K mandolin, K instruments of this era. You know, this is the Venetian side, and also the, the teardrop. Um, those can sound really good, especially the earlier ones. Kind of K developed a reputation for like just making cheap student instruments, but um, certainly earlier on, they were they were actually using you know some better materials. And um, uh, I think this they're very often overlooked um, as quality instruments, often because uh, you know they they did have some structural issues. And you know if you find you can find them cheap you know, on the internet, but then they need a complete overhaul. I can contend that uh, it's, it's totally worth it. You know, even if you have to sink, uh, you know, $1,200 into it, if you paid 150 for one, I think you're still, you've got, you know, 13 to $1,500 worth of mandolin, no problem. You know, yeah, <laughs> right, right. <laughs> you get a neck reset, new fingerboard, frets, bone nut, you know, all that stuff. Um, so. But anyway, so that, that I really like, I like this mandolin in particular and, Yeah, it sounds great. I mean, that, that's a lot of you too. But you know, I'm listening. I'm hearing it over just a phone line right now. So <laughs> yeah. yeah, no, it's, it's a great, it's a great sounding metal. Um, yeah, it's got a cool voice. Yeah, yeah. Um, so you know, I, I'm, I'm a, I, I, I like finding, uh, you know, catalog instruments and you know ones that have a the unique voice and you know maybe need some work. Um, but uh, it helps to know luthiers. Um, yeah, that's, and, that's a good thing. And yeah, I've worked with you know Tom Crandall and Tara Crandall in, uh, uh, in New York for years. And also my wife is, is a luthier. Oh, get out. No kidding. Cool. So between the two of them, I've, I've got... Um, <laughs> yeah, that helps. <laughs> yeah, so some access to you know work when needed. And you know, they've both been willing to help, to, you know, kind of resurrect or rebuild uh, some instruments that need work. But that, I, I, was, I always like that. I mean, I... I I always enjoy getting to play a lore or a Gilchrist or something like that, but uh, I don't tend to find those more compelling than, you know, like this instrument that I'm playing now, you know, they're, they're incredible <laughs> and very special, but. What about like strings and picks? Are you uh, uh, any a fan of either, uh, any particular brand or anything yeah, like that? Sort of yeah, stuff well, people love to hear about. Yeah, I mean, I'd like, to, I'd like to try, you know, different, you know, different strings. I'd, it tend to always be happy with the DA arrows, just regular phosphor bronze. I'd use the 11s on mandolins. Um, uh, I would prefer 11 fives, but um, I've rarely had instruments that I thought could 
handle the extra tension. Um, but you know, running for race instruments, <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's, it's doing fine. Um, and picks, uh, I, again, I, I have a bunch of different picks and, you know, try a variety when I can, but I always seem to come back to the weekend. Uh, I tend to prefer the bluegrass pick, you know, the, the teardrop in, uh, 1.2. I usually do a little bit of filing, um, on the, on my own. They, I think they come out, they show up a little too pointy, but, um, yeah, so those are just the ones that I keep coming back to. Yeah, and the vegans are good. You know, I, I, um, the, I you know, I've had some blue chip picks uh, as well, and, and I tend to like them a little bit better on mandolin than on guitar. For me, I mean, they're great picks, but I think that for me, I, I, I play really hard. <laughs> that that, and I think the the, the blue chips, I think, are it'll be clearer to more of a finesse style. Um, but I find that when you hit the strings as hard as I do, they, they tend to sound a little glassy and, you know, get some unpleasantness in the high end. But, um, I mean, I'm beating the, the snot out of the instrument usually. So it, <laughs> it's not a fault of the pick. <laughs> um, but, uh, the, the weekends I, I find, uh, are better in high intensity playing. Yeah. Well, you got to find what works so, for you, you know, for that's, me, that's yeah. the key. Yeah. I, I, I live in fear of, of you know, Michelle Wiegand, uh, somebody stopping uh, production of those picks. I hope, I hope he, he has a, an apprentice. <laughs> yeah. No kidding. Yeah. A lot. Of, I mean, man, I can't tell you how many of those I saw this weekend. Um, lot, lots of people with them, you know, they're, they're great picks. Yeah, yeah, and they're pretty affordable too, man. Like I, I always, mm-hmm. I think it's interesting when people are like, ah, I'd get Wiggins, but they're a little more expensive. I'm like, well, I don't, I don't, I don't know about <laughs> expensive, but yeah, right. you, know, you get a couple for the price. So, yeah, they're great. And then uh, I got two more questions for you here, and um, I was wondering if you had a suggestion for something for somebody just to work on if they had ten minutes a day. What would you recommend they work on? Hmm. Well, um, that, that's <laughs> any, any, yeah, any ways, number of ways you can go. Um, I, I think, uh, the, the 10 minute, uh, day, I think it's not, it's especially effective if you kind of stick to the same project for like at least a week or two, you know, so you're doing it, it's not just playing anything 10 minutes a day, but, you know, kind of playing the same thing and getting, getting, giving whatever it is you're working on a chance to, to sink in. So I, I think it's good to have that you know, whatever that is kind of evolve like every, you know, two weeks or whatever. Um, but, uh, you know, for a right hand or I shouldn't say right, kicking hand. So I want to be about the left-handed players, but the, for the picking hand, I, I find doing, you know, cross picking patterns, uh, like, you know, banjo roll, same thing, you know, Um, when I was just doing those little fast, but yeah, something about the rose styles that he would his, his hand was really wide, and, you know, hinged on the wrist. But when he played single notes, he, he looked like he was crossing all four strings a lot of the time. You know, he wasn't just kind of doing this small little stroke right above the string that he's trying to play. So. I think the cross speaking is, is really good for learning and getting comfortable with wide strokes, you know, developing comfort of hitting any string you want from any other place. Um, and kind of help gives people a way to sort of unspool some of the tension that tends to crop up, you know, when you're 
playing challenging music. Um, so that would be one thing. And another, just some more on the vocal side of things, is just, um, you know, taking any song that you can sing, if, if there's a jam, you know, a song you sing in a jam, and see if you can sound it out on the instrument, you know. There's a well-beaten path on this old mountainside. It's creating that connection, um, you know, between the voice and the mandolin. And that could be scales. It could be. It could be melodies, um, you know, arpeggios or whatever. But just just kind of getting your voice and your and your instrument lined up. That's great. So you have some really great suggestions. I love it, man. This has really been excellent talking with you today, especially when you mentioned the uh, the vocal tie-in with the mandolin. I was really excited to hear it, and it's so applicable. You know, it's just stuff people I don't think think of, you know, myself included oh, yeah. sometimes. So. I want to I hear more melody. It always makes me happy. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and you'd be like Tim O'Brien, too, and sing harmony over the parts, too. Like, he, uh, he's got oh, a couple, yeah. yeah, just guy's a monster. <laughs> totally. And then the last question is, do you have a favorite beer? Oh, a favorite beer? Um, mm, I, mm, I think you might have stumped me. I, I, I haven't uh, been much of a connoisseur as of late. <laughs> sure, sure. Or is there one in particular that you used to like to have? Um, let's see. I, I mean, I like to, you know, I, I really like bitter flavor. So, um, uh, I'm, I'm trying to find like a, I really appreciate finding a stout that's like really kind of strong and bitter, um, you know, not like a kind of coffee or not like a cake, you know, stout, but like you know, um, something a little bit more, uh, yeah, kind of cigar-y, bitter, <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Something that could like you know bust the fog in the <laughs> in the winter. Yeah. Well, Michael, thank you so much for doing the uh, doing the podcast. I really appreciate it. I love your playing, oh. and it was awesome to see you live and meet you in person this weekend. And and um, I'd love to get up to one of those Rockwood shows sometime too, if I can carve a carve a hole in my schedule ever. I would love to get up there. And there was one in I think February maybe that you did. I had talked to Jake, and I think it was maybe you and Tony Trishka and him possibly uh -huh. might have been doing that one. I would have loved to have gotten up there for that. But oh yeah, yeah, I've been playing that monthly. I used to, I used to do it weekly. Um, for like 13 years before the pandemic, but then I've been doing it monthly since, but it was different special guests. Actually, my next one's coming up with Jake Jolliffe on um, September, um, let's say it's 14th. I should have that. This is the second Wednesday in, in, sept in September. Oh, cool. Um, yeah, well, if, if you can get yourself to New York, I'll put you on the guest list. <laughs> yeah, man, definitely. That'd be great. That'd be great. And uh, again, I appreciate you doing this. Great. Well, thank you. Nice talking to you and, and good luck. All right. Thank you so much to Michael for doing the podcast. Those are some great ideas. Such a great player. If you get a chance, if you're in the New York area, check the Rockwood schedule to see if you can catch Michael uh, or if he comes around to your town as well. Just a fantastic performer as well as a player, singer, and person. So there. Uh, thank you all so much for listening. You guys have yourselves a fantastic weekend. And uh, I will get out a bonus episode here all about the incredible time I had at Green Mountain Bluegrass Festival here. So cheers, everybody.